Thanks, Katie. We're going to encounter some good news today, folks. Um, it is my joy and my privilege to have the chance to preach uh, for you today, in addition to getting to, to lead the songs. Um, I don't think I see anybody that I don't know, but in case somebody's hiding, I'm Blake. Uh, I'm the worship pastor. I don't preach every week. But I do have the privilege to preach occasionally, uh, and it's always a joy when I get the option uh, to do that. And hopefully I'll get to do it a little bit more because my academic life is hopefully slowing down a little bit. Um, so, so I'm always thankful for the opportunity to, uh, to get to do that. Um, as I mentioned, of course, I get, to, I get to lead the songs every week, which is a uh, joy of my life. Uh, you know, one of the, something I love uh, you know, to do, obviously. Um, and usually Bryce and I get together every week to sort of coordinate uh, the songs and the, and the sermon content a bit. So we're kind of emphasizing the same themes as much as possible. Some weeks that's easier than other, to other weeks uh, because, you know, some weeks we're preaching about something that there's not a lot of songs about or that it would be weird to sing about, you know, in some cases. Uh, but usually we try to at least emphasize the same things. But, you know, some weeks... Uh, the songs just sort of picked themselves, uh, and this was one of those weeks. Uh, I was going through First Peter, chapter one, uh, verses six and seven, and before I even got like halfway through sermon prep, I already had the song list because the songs just kind of came out of the of the scriptures. Um, it's you know some weeks it's kind of difficult because it just doesn't make sense uh, you know to, to, to pair the songs, but but some weeks. It's, you know, it's really easy. You know, when we were going through uh, Ecclesiastes, there's only so many songs about uh, how everything in life is vanity. You know, Stephen wrote, I think, the quintessential Ecclesiastes song. We sang that a lot. Um, but there was really not a lot of others. Um, but First Peter, so far, it's been a pretty easy job to pick related songs. Um, last week, Bryce preached from First Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, about how Jesus is our living hope. And so we sang a song called Living Hope. It was, you know, it's pretty easy. Um, and this week was kind of like that. I actually, like I said, I picked out the songs before I finished uh, preparing the sermon because they came right out of the scripture that I was preaching. And I don't know if you noticed that from the scripture that Katie just uh, read for us, but, you know, we, we sang lines today like, we will count it all joy, every trial, every tear. We sang, we will look to the life of the world to come. We sang, I know my pain will not be wasted. We sing, when through fiery trials my pathway shall lie, your grace all-sufficient shall be my supply. The flames shall not hurt us. I only design your dross to consume, your gold to refine. All of those lines are very specifically related to the passage that we're going to look at today. I don't tell you all that so that you'd be like, oh, good job, Blake. You picked out really uh, relevant songs today. I'm not looking for kudos uh, for that. I'd say that to remind you that every part of what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings is intentional. Um, and some days, like today, there is already a very specific theme uh, that is intentional and that is prevalent in the service. And so hopefully, uh, those songs, hopefully every week, uh, they sort of prime the pump for you. Or uh, they, they work up your appetite for the feast that we're going to enjoy in God's Word together. And if not... Uh, I encourage you to pay attention to that. Um, that's one of the reasons we, we read scriptures and talk about the songs. Um, uh, is so that we can, we can emphasize those things to prime the pump. Uh, so you can see how we're seeking to weave an intentional theme throughout this gathering. Um, I believe if you pay attention to that, it will be edifying for you. Um, better yet, 
uh, I try to post the service order, like the songs and the prayer, um, by Friday. Most weeks I do it by Friday. So you get a couple of days uh, to know what the songs are, to know what our congregational prayer is going to be, uh, to know what the scripture is going to be, which usually you can figure that out anyway because it's usually the next you know, set of verses right after what we did the previous week. Um, so if you spend some time with that, maybe listening to a couple of those songs or praying through that prayer in advance, reading the scripture a couple of times, um, I think that it will get you ready for the work that God wants to do in your heart here on Sunday morning. Um, and it will prepare him to do that work in a real way uh, when we gather. Um, and so it kind of tunes our hearts as, as we sing sometimes. Tunes our hearts for God's praise, right? Um, so like the tuning of an instrument, which I don't really know much about because mine's always in tune. Um, but, I'm, but I've seen it done uh, a lot of times. Um, we can tune our hearts to be ready for God's word in this way. So, so I just want that, hopefully that's edifying for you. Uh, with that in mind, uh, let's turn again to the book of 1 Peter. We've called this series, Born Again to a Living Hope. Now, you may have noticed last week, as, as Bryce pointed out, uh, I'm not terribly clever at coming up with uh, ser- uh, titles for our sermon series names. They're usually a little bit on the nose. Uh, and so when I tried to come up with a title for the sermon series in 1 Peter... Um, I just started reading chapter 1, and I got stuck on verse 3, and I was this is it. This is the one. Born again into a living hope. We got the sermon title right here, uh, verbatim, straight from the passage. Um, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of things uh, as we go through this book over the next, what, year or so, Bryce, I guess. Uh, we that. It's going to be a while. It's a pretty big book. Um, but the foundation of the message that Peter proclaims to the churches uh, when he writes this letter is a message of salvation. He says that through the gospel of Christ, we have been born again to a living hope. And we know that that living hope is, of course, the resurrected Christ. And so that's the foundation of the message. Even though we're going to look at a lot of different things, that is the foundation. And hopefully that's the foundation of what we proclaim to you week in and week out here. Not just as we encounter uh, this gospel message in the book of 1 Peter, but every week, right? Uh, Because the, the gospel, we want to be at the center of everything that we do. You know, when we speak about how Jesus is our living hope because of his resurrection, uh, when we speak a lot about the resurrection, it, it takes my mind to Resurrection Sunday, to Easter. And you know, I love Easter. Easter's, uh, and it's better than Christmas a little bit, uh, kind of for me, because it's such a celebration. It doesn't get overshadowed by all the other stuff. Um, I really love having this one day uh, of the year in the spring that is just solely dedicated to remembering not only did Jesus lay down his life on the cross for us, um, but that he is alive, that he was raised from the grave, that he holds the keys to life and death, that he demonstrated he's the only one who can lay down his life and take it up again. It's a good day. It's a good day. I love it. I love having a day set aside for that. But we shouldn't reserve our celebration uh, of the resurrection of Jesus for one day a year, right? Um, Now, having that, that one day is helpful, but we don't want to just do it then because If Jesus is alive, and church, Jesus is alive, his resurrection is the absolute foundation of our hope. Every moment of every day, not just during one particular holiday, Jesus is our living hope. Not just the one day, Jesus is our living hope. He ever lives and pleads for us. His resurrection is not simply the climax of this particular story that we find in the Gospels. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge of all of history. It's the linchpin upon which everything else that we claim to believe rests. 
If there is no bodily resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope. Christianity and all that we do in the name of our faith is absolutely worthless if there is no resurrected Christ. If Jesus merely died like everybody else. But if Jesus is alive, we have life through his resurrection. And if he is alive, he is who he said he is. Every word that he said is true. Jesus demonstrated that he is God. And in him we have a living hope. His resurrection is it's, it's the thing upon which everything else rests. So, so don't leave that for Easter. Let's celebrate his resurrection every single week. Because Jesus is alive, church. Because of that, we don't just have a longing hope, as Bryce pointed out last week, or, or the sort of longing hope that we lean into uh, during Advent, which we're coming up on here in about a month and a half. We don't just have wishful thinking in, in our faith. We have a living Savior. We have a living hope. And He is the absolute assurance of our faith. Uh, Mr. Bruce pointed out last week when we were talking about this word hope, how it kind of has a dual meaning, this longing hope and this living hope. And he said, he, why couldn't Peter just use the word certainty? I think certainty is what you said. And I think that's right, right? I mean, we're not going to question the words that he used. But when we talk about the living hope that we have in Jesus, we're talking about assurance, absolute assurance, not wishful thinking. Jesus is the absolute assurance of our faith. And through him, as we saw last week, we have an inheritance that Peter says is imperishable, is undefiled, and is unfading. An inheritance that is guarded by God himself in the heavenly places. And as we'll see today, we rejoice in that inheritance that was purchased by our crucified and resurrected Savior. So we're only doing two verses today. Katie uh, read them for us. I want to read them again just to make sure they're at the forefront of our mind before we dive into them. So uh, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 again says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray before we jump into this text. God, we thank you for your self-revelation of yourself. God, that you have given us all that we need for life and for godliness through your word. God, you have given, uh, given us the power of your spirit that's like, that's like a flashlight that, that shines upon your word. Lord, he is um, a light to our feet, or a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. God, I pray, pray that as we... Look at your word together today, God, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate it in our hearts. God, I, I'm not terribly clever. God, but I don't have to be because your gospel is true. God, I pray that you would use me as your vessel to proclaim the truth of your word today. And that you would do the transformative work that your Holy Spirit alone can do in our hearts as we encounter you in your word. God, we thank you uh, that even though, as Peter says, we face trials of many kinds, God, that you have a purpose for those trials. God, and in the end, we can see a, a, a glorious purpose at the revelation of Christ through whatever we face in this life. So God, allow us to be transformed by your word as we encounter you today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christians are called to be a people of joy. Scripture emphasizes this all throughout. Um, Jesus tells us in John 15, verses 10 and 11, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The psalmist says to God in Psalm 16, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The prophet Isaiah says, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I could read probably a thousand more verses that emphasize the fact that you and I were created for joy in our creator. And we can only find that joy in God himself. Now this is not, as we've pointed out many times before, uh, the same as temporary happiness. Because that's dependent upon what happens to us, upon our circumstances. But when we speak of the joy that we were created for... And that we can know in God, we speak of lasting, enduring, and abiding joy. That we cannot experience apart from knowing God and the purpose that he created us for. So we were created for joy, but yet we also see throughout scripture that life is filled with sorrow. As Wesley says in The Princess Bride, life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling something. We saw this repeatedly uh, when we looked at what Solomon taught us through Ecclesiastes. He tells us that it's a great evil that life is filled with oppression and toil and trouble. He believed it was all vanity. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 90 that the years of our life are 70, even by reason of strength 80, and yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone and we fly away. The prophet Jeremiah asked, why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and to spend my days in shame? Jesus emphasized the difficulty that we will certainly face in this life. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So there is a guarantee that we are going to encounter hard things, pain, sorrow, suffering in this life. Scripture tells us that God's people are called to joy, and yet it also is replete with examples of God's people not only experiencing pain and suffering, but also that we can expect pain and suffering in this life. So which is it? Are we called to joy, or are we called to pain? That's right. The simple answer is yes. These twin truths are inescapable when you read the Bible. Because we have an indestructible, inexpressible joy that we find in Christ. And yet we know that we will inevitably experience sorrow and pain too. It's a paradox that is not always easy to swallow. And yet we know based on the testimony of scripture, on the testimony of countless Christians over the centuries, and probably even over the testimony of many of our own lives. And if you're not there yet, you, you'll get there. We know that there is real, abiding, indestructible joy in Christ. And yet we also know that the call to follow Jesus does not always allow us to escape the inevitability of the difficult things of life. And this is, I think, what Peter is addressing in 1 Peter 1, the scriptures that we're going to look at today. Today I'm going to look at what he has to say about this paradox, these twin truths that the Christian life is a life of joy, even though the Christian life leads us to encounter various trials. 
And so the first thing I want you to see from this passage today is that rejoicing endures. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. And when he says, in this, this you rejoice, we have to look back, right? We want to preach in context. We're not pull- we are preaching just a couple of verses, but we're doing the whole thing. So what this points back to verses 3 through 5. The living hope that we have through the resurrected Christ and the inheritance that he has secured for us that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. In this, you rejoice. We rejoice in our salvation and the one who purchased it, our living hope, Christ. And that is reason to rejoice. John MacArthur uh, wrote that the, uh, in a sermon about this passage that this word rejoice here is in what he says is the present middle voice in the Greek. And so it has this idea of continual exuberant joy and gladness. He says you could translate it, be jubilant, be exuberantly glad. Right? There is this ongoingness to it. In this you rejoice. So it's not so much a command as it is a disposition of our souls. If we have found salvation in Christ, we rejoice because we can't help it. Before we get to the trials part, I want to spend a moment considering this. That, church, you and I are called to great rejoicing. And it is not only a rejoicing because of the inheritance that is to come for us in the future. We we do rejoice in that, to be sure. But Peter here is emphasizing rejoicing is not just for later. Rejoicing is for now. We, we have this guarantee of a future inheritance, but we cannot yet experience the fullness of the, that inheritance because though our inheritance is sure, it is not yet consummated. We can't get the fullness of it now. So we sort of have this engagement ring, so to speak, of our inheritance, and, and that is the seal. That is the Holy Spirit. But we know that this great wedding feast is still a ways off, and we don't know how long it's going to be. And so we are called to rejoice now with enduring joy. But how can we? How can we rejoice now when we don't have the fullness of our inheritance? Well, if if our rejoicing is only in what will be one day, we miss the joy that God has for us right here, right now, in this life. Our Our rejoicing should endure to the end, but we are called to rejoice even now. We cannot simply overlook this life and think, oh, this doesn't matter because later on we're going to get this undefiled, unimperishable inheritance when God's kingdom comes in its fullness because there is joy to be found in the life that God has given us here. God longs for us to experience that joy here and now. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And forever starts now, Christian. Not just in eternity when we arrive at the golden shore. Don't miss the joy that God has for you in this life by only overlooking it to what is ahead. The guarantee of future glory gives us reason to rejoice now, even in our trials. So this should cause us not simply to overlook our current trials, but to see them as part of God's bigger design for future glory. To see every part of God's sovereign will for our lives as part of Him weaving together this beautiful tapestry of the abundant life that He has for us. 
we have an enduring joy that should cause us to rejoice in the God who created us to be satisfied in Him. Church, we have an enduring joy. And as I, as I pointed out, though, the second thing I want you to see is we also face trials. Those trials, though, are temporary. Peter says, in this you rejoice. We, we covered that, what we're rejoicing in, why that rejoicing endures. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter says uh, that our trials last for a little while. But frankly, it doesn't always seem like just a little while, Right? I mean, what does he mean when he says that we face various trials just for a little while? I, I don't think that he means that we can be guaranteed that our grief will necessarily be short in this life. I mean, think about the trials that maybe you have faced or the, the pe- people that you know. Many people experience trials in this life even longer than they experience happiness in this life. I mean, we may face trials that kill us, whether by persecution or by, by broken hearts or terminal illness. Those trials don't feel like they last for a little while. You you could face trials that will take your life. So how can Peter trivialize this to say that the trials of life are just for a little while when for many of us they can seem to last a lifetime? Well, it's because in light of eternity, our trials are brief. The psalmist says in Psalm 103 that God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. Then James, sort of echoing those words, wrote that you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. See, this life, as we talked about over and over again when we talked about Ecclesiastes, it's a moment. It's a vapor that passes away. It's a passing shadow. And so the troubles that we face in this relatively brief life are but a momentary affliction. And if we remember that, if we fix our eyes not on what is temporary but on what is eternal, we are reminded of how short our sorrow in this life really is. Even though it may be painful, we were reminded that it is brief. That's what causes Paul to write in 2 Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, James wrote, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I don't think that Peter is trivializing the pain and sorrow that we face. And I don't want to do that either. I don't mean that our pain isn't real, that it doesn't hurt, that it doesn't matter. I don't want to make light of the pain and sorrow that you may be experiencing now or that you have or will experience. I'm not trying to trivialize your hardships. I'm not telling you just to suck it up and get over it because it's going to get better later on. What I'm saying is that the trials and the grief and the hardship of this life are ultimately for your good. That God has a purpose for them. God is not the author of evil, but he does use all things as a part of his sovereign will for our lives. He weaves together a beautiful tapestry. 
And it is a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. Later on in 1 Peter, uh, in chapter 4, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Then he writes, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Then in chapter 5, I'm spoiling the whole series for you, I'm sorry. Then in chapter 5 he says, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You're going to get a lot of this in First Peter. Get ready. And it's going to be good. Church, suffering is real. Pain is difficult and it hurts our bodies and it hurts our hearts. But we cannot fix our eyes on it. As if sorrow is all there is to this life. Wesley was wrong. Remember, we are called to enduring, unspeakable, indestructible joy. So it is not a matter of whether we will experience pain. Because church, you will experience pain. It is whether we will choose to fix our eyes on that pain and its temporary shackles. Or whether we will fix our eyes on the one who has borne our grief and affliction. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6 that as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. He says, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet we are well known. As dying, and behold, we live. As punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. See, that's what happens when you fix your eyes on the one who bore your grief. You have the mindset of Paul. We have everything that we need in Christ, who is our living hope. You know, in thinking over this, this past week, I was reminded of, of a favorite lyric that I have from a, a couple-year-old couple Switchfoot song. Uh, the song's called Joy Invincible, and in it, John Foreman reflects on the pain that he's experienced in this life. And then he declares, Hallelujah, nevertheless, was the song the pain couldn't destroy. Hallelujah, nevertheless, you're my joy, invincible. Church, our pain is not wasted when we see it as part of God's larger plan for our good and His glory. If we encounter our pain as part of God's sovereign will for us, it will ultimately lead us to, a, uh, to experience a truer and deeper and more lasting joy than we, than we could have found apart from it. And so with that, with that in mind, I want to look at three ways from this passage uh, that God uses our temporary trials to establish enduring joy. First, trials test the genuineness of our faith. That's what verse 7 says. That, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold. See, trials prove whether our faith is real. 
Trials are a part of how we are refined, how we are sanctified into the image of Jesus. As we sang earlier, and I quoted to you at the beginning, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, God says, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. That song's from God's perspective, by the way. It's based on a song. And then we sang that God uses that flame to consume our dross, to refine our gold. See, when gold is melted in the fire, impurities float to the top. That's what refining is, and they can be removed. Those, those impurities are called dross. And when that refining is over, the gold is more valuable than it was before the refining. So God, in his wisdom, often puts us into the furnace to refine our gold, to remove our dross, to take out our impurities. And trials are often the primary way that God puts us into that furnace to refine us. And when God does that, we can, cl we can clearly see what is left over. For some, when they are put into the refining fire, there is nothing left after, afterward. It shows that their faith was dead, that it wasn't real. But others, the trials of the furnish result in a proven faith that Peter says is more precious than gold. Now we see this testing at many places throughout Scripture. The obvious mind that comes to example when you think of somebody who's tested for their faith is Job, right? Nobody got that. Okay. Job. So Job endured many trials. He lost everything. He nearly lost his life. His naysayer friends offered him all sorts of terrible advice. They tried to rationalize his suffering. Job didn't do that. Now he did have some things to say. God chastised him for it. But he didn't do that. Job's faith was tested, and he proclaimed, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. See, the fiery trial of Job's testing proved his faith was genuine. Now, that's not always the case. We see other people in Scripture, like Judas Iscariot. I mean, Judas followed Jesus for three years. He witnessed countless miracles. He heard these incredible divine teachings from the mouth of Jesus and yet when Judas's faith was tested, when he was tempted, he betrayed Jesus. And Judas ended up taking his own life in his grief over that sin. Judas faced the trial, the testing of his faith, and it proved tragically to be false. I think this is what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, he says, A sower went out to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. See, I think in this parable, um, there may be multiple applications, but uh, I think the trials if you want to parallel, in this parable are the hungry birds and the shallow soil and the hot sun and the thorns, right? The things that come to destroy the seed. And none of those seeds stood the test of those hardships. But the seed that fell on good soil did, and it multiplied exponentially. That's how true faith works. When our faith is tested, it demonstrates whether or not it is real. This week I was talking about this passage to a friend of mine at work. Uh, he's a retired pastor named Kenny. We have a lot of good conversations. And uh, he gave me a pretty helpful list uh, that he once heard in a sermon about this of why God allows us to experience trials. 
Uh, so this is me not plagiarizing and giving credit to Kenny, who gave credit to somebody that he didn't remember their name. So, uh, why does God allow us to experience trials? He told me five, there are five ways from this passage. First, he said that trials prove you to God. These aren't going to be on the screen. You can write them down. They're simple. Trials prove you to God. See, when we experience trials, it allows us a chance to demonstrate that our faith in God is real. If you think of uh, Abraham, for example. When God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he didn't know it was a test of his faith. Right? He just knew God told him to do it. And so he went and did it. Right? He knew that it would break his heart to lay down his li- the life of his son. I mean, I can't imagine the grief that he experienced through that. But he didn't know it was a test. He just knew God said, do this, and so I'm going to do it. And, of course, right when he was about to plunge the knife into Isaac, God stopped him and said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your only son from me. See, the trial proved Abraham to God. It proved that Abraham absolutely trusted God. And it was only when he was fully ready to follow through in obedience that he proved his true faith. Now, God's sovereign. He knew Abraham's heart. But, in a sense, it proves our faith to God. Then, secondly, trials prove God to you. You know, trials are perhaps the best way that trials prove God to us. Um, they're perhaps the only way that we can know that we are fully reliant upon God. You know, in describing his uh, suffering for his faith, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, uh, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Who raises the dead. So that was, it was true for Paul there that the trials proved God to him. They taught him reliance upon God. Trials increase our dependence on God in a way that really nothing else can. They demonstrate to us that God is with us no matter what we face. And so trials prove uh, you to God. Trials prove God to you. Thirdly, Kenny said that trials proved you to you. I mean, think of the times, uh, if you have the benefit of hindsight, maybe you're in the middle of something now, but, if, but you, if you have the benefit of hindsight, think of the times when you came through a trial by the grace of God. Now, it's difficult to see when you're in the thick of it, but in hindsight, we can often see that we do have the great endurance that God promises us that those trials will teach us. Trials allow us to prove to ourselves that by God's grace, we have what we need to endure trials. So trials prove you to you, not in a uh, prideful way, like, oh, I'm, I, I did it. But they, they, they prove that we have what God says we have, and that we can make it through. Fourthly, trials prove you to others. Is there, is there any greater witness to a watching world that we believe, what we say we believe, than when a Christian goes through deep hardship and they don't lose their faith? Is there any greater testimony? I don't, when I think of the people that I that I want to be like, like the spiritual giants of my life, those, it's the people who've done that. Because like it, it's not just easy for them, you know? Um, you probably know of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a fam- famous faithful follower of Jesus. Uh, she's written extensively about suffering and, and enduring it for God's glory. Uh, she's, uh, got, she's a quadriplegic. She's been com- confined to a wheelchair for decades. And if you don't know who that is, Google her. She's, she's, a, she's a big deal. She's got a whole ministry. And, um, but she's written and spoken extensively on suffering. 
Uh, she wrote that suffering provides the gym equipment on which my faith can be exercised. Suffering provides the gym equipment on, with my, on which my faith can be exercised. I mean, what a testimony to a world uh, who they'll often say that Christianity is, is a crutch for the weak. That's not true at all. The world just misses it. If we remain steadfast through our trials, we show to the world that we do believe what we say that we believe and that God is with us. So trials prove you to others. And lastly, trials prove God to others. When we remain steadfast through the trials of our life, we truly demonstrate to the world God is real. And that he really is with us through our sorrows. As I read earlier, the prophet Zechariah uh, in, in chapter 13, God said that he would, he would put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver. To test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. See, when we demonstrate the genuineness of our faith by allowing our trials to be used for our good and for God's glory, we show the world the Lord is our God and that we cannot be shaken. That God will give us joy not in spite of, but even as a result of, often, our pain. That's why Peter says that proven faith is more precious than gold. And when our faith is proved to be genuine, we can see that, secondly, trials result in praise, glory, and honor. It's exactly what he says here, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. After our faith is tested by the refining fire of trials, it is transformed into something more beautiful than it was before those trials. That's why James says to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what the sort of inverse of that verse is? That without the trials of various kinds, you, you won't be complete, lacking in nothing. That our faith is tested and it's more beautiful, it's more complete as a result of the trials that we face. A faith that has been tested by many trials is more beautiful than a faith that is immature and untested. Because it produces, as James says, a steadfastness in us that makes us perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing, he says. The psalmist wrote, it is, it, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. We see this with Jesus' disciples. Their faith was tested when Jesus died. And we found out very quickly in that narrative, their faith at that time was, was pretty weak. It was not tested. It was immature. They ran away scared. Even the author of this book, you remember that, right? I don't mean that kind of seemingly. Like the guy who wrote Peter is the same guy who denied Jesus three times on the night he was betrayed. But when Jesus was raised from the dead... Everything changed. Their faith proved to be genuine. That's why the resurrected Christ is our living hope. Because Jesus is alive and we have a faith that withstands the test of many trials. This very same Peter, the very same author of this book was the Peter who denied Jesus when his faith was tested. And then he ended up writing the very words that we are studying today. The Bible itself doesn't tell us exactly how Peter died. 
Although Jesus did say to uh, the disciple, I think, yeah, to Peter in John 21, he says, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went, and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. And it says in John 21, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. So tradition holds, and many people interpreting that passage hold, that that Peter uh, died by crucifixion. In fact, tradition holds that he was crucified upside down uh, by the Roman Empire. So, and that is consistent with what Jesus ha- says, that when he's old, his hands will be stretched out. And it says it was the, kind of, the manner he would, he would uh, glorify God. So this very same Peter was so transformed by seeing Jesus killed and then raised to life again that Peter himself endured crucifixion for Jesus. This is a demonstration of how trials result in praise and glory and honor. Of how knowing that Jesus is alive transforms our faith into something that is indestructible. A faith that will literally go to the cross to show how true it is. It was for Peter and it can be for you too. So let us not face trials with the expectation that they will ruin us. Sometimes I think about that, like, man, what if, how would I respond if, I did, if something, something happened to me like this or whatever? And I wonder, like, is it going to ruin me? No, no, no. Let us count it all joy, for though we suffer, we are not left alone. Through our suffering, we can obtain a proven faith that is more glorious. A faith that testifies to the world of the power of our resurrected Savior who is coming soon. That's the last thing I want you to see today. That trials will find their purpose, their ultimate purpose, when Christ returns. That's what he says, that... um, The tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, we rejoice through our trials because they cause us to have great anticipation for the day that they will finally end at the return of Christ. I mentioned when I preached Ecclesiastes a few months ago that right now, Uh, We just know when we see the world around us, nothing is quite like it's supposed to be. The suffering and the sin and the trials of this life demonstrate to us the world is broken. The world is not the way that it ought to be. And so there, there can be a beauty in experiencing sorrow and pain in this life because it's a reminder that this is not the end. This is not how things should be. It should cause us to long for the day when Jesus returns to make all things new. We rejoice with anticipation and the realization of what we are anticipating will be even greater than what we can imagine. And so we can can rejoice in our sorrow for we know it points us to the day when every tear will be wiped away from every eye. When there will be no more sorrow or pain or suffering. Jesus illustrates this uh, in John 16. He, He compares it to childbirth. He says, when a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. You hear that, church? We have sorrow that is real right now. But it's for a little while. 
Jesus will come again. And our hearts, he says, will rejoice. And he's going to give us a joy that cannot be taken away. A joy that is indestructible. A joy that we experience right now, but it only pales in comparison to the joy that we will experience when Christ comes to make all things new. Church, pain is real. Trials are hard, and they are inevitable. But if we keep our eyes fixed upon them, they will rob us of the inexpressible joy that Jesus purchased for us at the cross when he paid for our sin. Oh, Christian, will you turn your eyes upon Jesus? Will you lift your eyes from your pain to the one who bore all of your pain and sorrow on the cross? Let us with our eyes fixed not on our purposeful but temporary struggles in this life, fix our eyes on the source of our joy, our living hope, our resurrected Savior who is coming soon. Let us declare along with the psalmist in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil and he will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are with us no matter what we face in this life. God, though pain and sorrow and suffering are inevitable, God, and though they are often, frankly, a result of our own disobedience, God, we know you use all things as a part of your sovereign will for our good and for your glory. So God, would you give us that enduring joy? God, would you uh, allow us to remember what you have called us to? That God, though we know that suffering is inevitable, God, you have also called us to a life of joy. For you created us for joy in knowing you. God, would you teach us a deeper dependence upon you? God, for we, we know with absolute certainty that things will be hard sometimes, God. And we don't want to trivialize the reality of that, Lord, for it, for it hurts. Sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally. God, those things are real. God, but you uh, made a way for all those things to be done away with one day. So God, may the sorrow that we face in this life point us to the fact that Jesus is coming again and he will make all things new. God, that you have offered a remedy for the situation that we are in. God, and we can trust in you. God, in the meantime, will you teach us to rely upon you and to rely upon one another. Thank you that you have placed us into a body uh, that is called to bear one another's griefs. What a joy that is, Lord, to bear one another's burdens together. I thank you for how even that points us to what you were like. Thank you that Jesus is our living hope, that he is not dead, but that he defeated death. And because of him, we have hope that is indestructible. God, may we declare that indestructible hope to a world that can't possibly fathom it apart from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.